Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Hosea 3 tonight. We'll keep going from there. Um, Hosea 1, the chapters 1 through and 2, and even 3 are still talking about this image of marriage in that God has married Israel and Israel's committed adultery. And he's asked Hosea to be an image or a symbol of that relationship. So he's asked Hosea to go find a prostitute and make her his wife and then have children with the prostitute which is an odd thing because you don't quite know if those are your children or not. And even one of the children is named Not My People. And so you have um, this kind of really sad relationship, but then everything Hosea says comes from a place of experience, not from theory. And I wonder sometimes as believers come into the kingdom that some of those experiences we've had, God's given us some of those trials so that when we talk to people about our faith, we're not doing it in theory, we're doing it from experience. And so learning to trust the Lord, learning to walk with the Lord, and be able to do that with an authenticity, Hosea's got it. So when he goes to Israel and says, you guys have committed adultery against the Lord, he knows personally the pain that that causes and the heartache that that causes the Lord. Then you get to chapter 3 and it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a love, but who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Sometimes the Bible just hits you with these odd turns of phrase that really get your attention. Um, God commands Hosea to return to his adulterous wife. Now this is, Interesting when you look at Levitical law, Deuteronomy, the only reason for a, a divorce is when the covenant's been broken through adultery. Like you can have an awfully horrible spouse, but you stay married to them until the day you die or the day they die, unless adultery is involved. And so when you see in the that, that the law permits a divorce in the case of adultery, with Hosea, God tells him to go right back to that marriage and go back at it. So just because it's permitted doesn't mean it's required or assumed. So this command from God uh, is an act of love despite, despite an, a horrible betrayal of trust that's happened in Hosea's life. And so it's heartaching to see that he's in this situation, but it's his love that draws him back into that relationship and to renew that. So here we see healing instead of divorce. And I think this is, again, God's heart is that there would be healing with his people, not a permanent divorce. There's this period where they're separated, but then the love comes back. In other words, we serve a God that loves even when love is difficult to do. And so we see that this is kind of like a, a, a hard love. It's not easy to love Israel at this point. It's not easy to love an adulterous wife, yet there's a choice and a command that to do that. And we see God's heart is to renew relationships, not to break them. So a choice gets made. There's an act of will that happens. Clearly, Hosea's feelings are probably going one direction, but the command from the Lord is to go another. So he chooses to do it and he does it. And it says, this is like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. All of this is a lesson 
and putting Hosea through this experience. So God's made a choice to love a sinful Israel. And this is how God treats all of us. Romans 5.8, same idea. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Essentially, everyone who's been called into the kingdom of God was loved by God even when we were committing adultery against that God. We're going, our heart's going after other lovers and we're loving other people's raisin cakes. Like, just an odd turn of phrase there. Um, but we're liking the, the, the petty delights of other things instead of the great delight of the love of the Lord. Verse 2, so I bought her for myself. That's interesting. He had to buy her as a prostitute for himself. Um, for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Uh, you shouldn't have to buy your own wife which shows how deep she had gone back to prostitution. But he does this anyways. He actually pays the price. Jesus shouldn't have had to pay a price to reclaim his people. Yet he died on a cross paying a price for our sins, even when we didn't deserve it. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. So he comes back to Gomer and he, and he gives her this call like you don't have to be in you don't have to be prostituting yourself all the time you can come back home you can fall in love and I'll be your husband again and again everything mirrors God's love towards his people for the children of Israel still abide many days without king or prince without sacrifice or sacred pillar without ephod or teraphim verse 5 afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So to be without king or prince, there's no political saviors that are going to help you. And this is the thing with adultery. Without sacrifice or sacred pillar, there's, and those are, one is a spiritual ritual sacrifice. The sacred pillar is always pagan. So there's, there's nothing about Judaism or paganism that's going to save you. It's the love of God that saves you. Without ephod or teraphim, again, they're using Jewish and pagan images side by side. The ephod is, the, remember that mantle that the priest would wear? that had the 12 stones of Israel on it. And the teraphim would be um, an image that really comes from pagan ritual or pagan worship. Verse 5 says, Afterwards the children of Israel shall return. After what? Well, we know the judgment is that there's going to be a period of separation. The northern kingdom will be taken away by Assyria. So that was talked about in the last chapter, and then this is part of that promise of, but God's going to return. The whole point of this distance, the whole point of... Judah being taken away by Babylon is that being away for a season, they would learn to appreciate their king. And in fact, you look at Judaism today, there aren't a lot of Jews off doing idol worship. Like honestly, these separation periods have been wildly successful in eliminating idol worship from Jewish traditions and cultures. So even after Rome attacks the Jews and they diaspora all over the planet, they still don't re-embrace this kind of co-worshiping of other gods with Yahweh. The Jews have really stayed true to Yahweh because of these separations, these judgments that they had in history. It says they shall fear the Lord. This idea here is that if you disobey God, there are consequences. And the primary consequence is God lifting his hand and lifting his blessing from these people. So to not experience God's blessing for a season and then to experience it, you fear losing that blessing. And that's the fear of the Lord, that he can and will and he has the power to withdraw blessing whenever he pleases. Then you get this reference to David, their king. So we're talking future tense. When Hosea is writing this, David has been buried for a long time. 
So what do they mean by David their king? So they will seek David. This could allude to the throne of David and the actual, um, like Jesus Christ coming on the throne of David. But it doesn't say that. It says they shall have David their king and this actual return. This is where prophecy gets kind of fun. Or fun for some people, intimidating for others. If you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all reference that in the latter days, David, the David, will have a role of leadership again with God's people. That David sat on the throne in history, but that he will again be sitting on the throne as one of the princes of the kingdom. Ezekiel specifically uh, says this, Ezekiel 34, 24, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. And I will make them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. So not only will David reign on his throne, but there are these latter days that are predicted by all the prophets in very specific terms, and I, and I just added in that second verse because, once again, it references that we're going to be on good terms with animals again. So there's something to this latter kingdom that I think is really amazing. It seems to be here on earth, and there will be past heroes of the faith that are living amongst us again. You want to go hang out with King David and play some music? Well, he might need a guitarist, Grant. And you can go down and play music with King David. And I, to me, that sounds so exciting. Like, I'm good for a thousand years of hanging out with people. Um, and, you know, I think it'll be fun to even stop down and talk to Hosea and get the wisdom of a guy that knows how to show love even when he's not loved back. I want to meet Hosea someday. And just these images of, of David, their king, that we see in this idea, similar to um, what we see in the prophets, we see a very consistent image of this millennial kingdom, uh, this period of time after Jesus returns where there will be saints kind of ruling. And there's an idea of an authority structure and God kind of realigning the government. And David will be one of the princes. He'll be one of the people that have authority in that kingdom. Then we get to Hosea chapter 4. Here's the charge. So Hosea, if, if, so if you can read like Deuteronomy, like a wedding contract, which is, it was structured like a wedding contract. Hosea is the divorce contract. And, and, and it sounds like an odd thing to say, but Hosea is structured like a divorce contract. So we have so far laid out the charges against the bride and what she's done. We've seen God's hope for redemption in that situation. Um, and in chapter four, it switches gear. We move to kind of a new section of the contract, which is here are the charges laid out very specifically. This is what Israel has done wrong. Um, verse one, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land, colon. So here's what the charges are. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That's the charge. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. So this idea of bringing a charge is like God's bringing Israel to the courtroom. Here's what, here's what the case is. And the truth here is the case is this, this lack of truth is connected to swearing and lying. The mercy is connected to killing, stealing, and adultery. Knowledge of God is tied to the, the breaking of all restraint. And so there's this idea that the, the nation and the culture has de degenerated to this point. Um, truth and swearing and lying. The, the fact that there's no truth means that swearing and lying are common. And there's a difference between swearing and lying. To swear on something in their context isn't just to say swear words. It is to say something that is true that is not true. 
So you swear you'll be there. You swear you'll do something. And then people don't keep their word. And if we're supposed to be reflections of God and God keeps his word, then every time we break our word to somebody, we are breaking the image of God that we're supposed to be presenting to people. So saying what's true to the best of your ability. And this is connected. A tongue that speaks falsely is not a friend of God because God speaks truth and we should be speaking truth too. The second accusation or charge is the idea of mercy. Mercy is to not dole out due punishment to people. The opposite of that is killing, stealing, committing adultery, all these sins that are happening. And all of those sins are the breaking of a covenant between us and other people. Adultery is the breaking of a covenant with a wife. Stealing is a breaking with a covenant with other people that are in your community. Killing is clearly the breaking of a human-to-human covenant where we don't take blood from one another. The knowledge of God and the breaking of all restraint go together too. God provides healthy limits to human behavior. And I think this is the benefit of reading the Torah, is you see that God's law is, first of all, very doable, and it makes a ton of sense. The only reason you don't follow God's law is because you have your own selfish pride, and you want to do it your way instead. So those without God's word don't know those constraints to action, natural constraints. Without those constraints, they'll do anything they want to. So the world preaches often no limits, do what you want, or Nike says, just do it. No limits. And so we see even these kind of promotional things, even in our advertisements for products. You can do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And that lack of constraint gets preached by the world. What the people of God preach is the exact opposite. Jesus saves and we choose to follow him and his law. So we choose to ch- the constraints that God has created because we know God's a good God. But without a knowledge of God, humans act as though he's not there, they d- that he doesn't care, or that he won't react to and judge our sin in any way, shape, or form. And so you see this idea that to not have a knowledge of God is a breaking of all restraint. The, then the next thing that happens is bloodshed upon bloodshed. As soon as people don't have restraint and they start doing whatever they want to do, it eventually leads to bloodshed. It leads to chaos in the streets because you got everybody doing whatever they want. And so a world with no human limits on flesh and on sin becomes a world that's filled with factions and power grabs and everyone trying to get one up on each other until you get to the point of conflict. The truth dies, mercy dies, knowledge of God is dead, violent crimes explode. This is the accusation against Israel. This is what happened to them. It's hard to not see that mirrored in the world around us because humans haven't changed that much, right? We still see truth, mercy, and knowledge die, and violence escalates. And it's happened over and over and over again. And you'd think as humans we would learn, but we don't learn, right? So the people of God get together and say, even if I live in a world where that starts to happen, I'm going to embrace truth, embrace mercy, and embrace knowledge of God. And if I do those things, at least me and God are on good terms. And if I can even find one or two other saints to live that way with me and side by side, then we become the people of God, plural. And this is the charge against Northern Israel. Nobody's left that's doing that. And that's where God is like, we've cleaned house. And remember, a lot of the people that follow the Lord have moved to Judah at this point. So you get this knowledge of God. The opposite of sin is to know God. If we know God, it reduces sin in our life because we understand how it breaks the heart of our Lord every time we sin. And we think we're just sinning against other people, so hidden sins are a little better than public sins. No, they're not. They both are an adultery against our God. 
and he loves us even in that condition. True knowledge of God builds a love and a fear of God. Because if you know who he is and how powerful he is and how much he loves you, you don't want to be doing things to offend him. I think of my grandpa. If I ever let my grandpa down, it would have broke my heart. Because I knew he loved me. And I knew he was a good man. And I knew he was a man of that feared God. And it, and I hope we all have people in our life like that where we just adore them and we respect them and to let them down would actually be heartbreaking. So when we know God and we know that character of God, we don't want to let him down. So we, look, we, we accept the knowledge of God and the constraints that go with it. And we, I'll just steal this example. <laughs> if we go skydiving, this was Grant's thing, and we jump out of a plane... In order to do that freedom of flying through the air and diving into the abyss out of a plane, we have to do some knowledge gaining before we do it. We learn how to pack a parachute. And there is one way to pack a parachute correctly. And so packing that parachute so that it works would be a way to do this. And that's not constraining to a skydiver. That's just smart. So in the same way, we don't go through life without knowing how to pack our parachute. We don't go, if we have a knowledge of God, we actually understand how to thrive in life. And it gives us freedom to jump out of planes spiritually. If we don't know how to do it, then there's a great fear that should naturally come with jumping out of that plane. That you don't even have a parachute on would be actually hazardous. So this idea that we can jump out of a plane with no restraint, no limits, and then we all brag, look, nobody's telling me what to do. Until you hit the ground, that's a really interesting experience. And you go, splat. And this is what God's trying to warn them about. There's this lack of restraint that you all have, and it leads to going splat. And the end result isn't any good. Yet the people of God say, okay, I, I want to have a knowledge of how to do this right, so I'm actually going to listen to the God that created me. I'm going to listen to the people that have successfully skydived before I go skydiving. I'm going to learn from those people and get some education from those people so that I too can skydive and live life with joy. And so that's the kingdom of God. A lack of knowledge is no excuse. And there's no salvation in having a lack of knowledge. And this is true of skydiving also, to keep the metaphor going. Just because I have never heard of parachutes doesn't mean that I won't go splat at the other end. So it's the job of the parachute jumping skydivers to tell the new people how to do this correctly. And so as Christians, this is part of what we share with the world, is that we help people to find salvation by showing them the way to do that. And so you get to verse 3. Therefore the land will mourn, obviously because there's lots of parachute jumpers that didn't quite do it the right way. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. If they don't want God, God won't bless them anymore. That idea of wasting away, this northern kingdom is going to do that. Prior to Assyria taking them over, they'll be destitute because Assyria will impose heavy tariffs. They'll lose city after city after city before it happens. Paul uses this principle too. Romans 1.28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. If people don't want the knowledge of God or the constraints of God, God eventually says, okay, try it your way. And that's 
how God operates. So Paul's bringing a charge against the Gentiles when he says it. Hosea's bringing a charge against the northern kingdom when he says it. But the principle remains the same. If you don't want God in your life, God's a gentleman. He'll let you do your thing. Even unto the point of going splat on the ground. But his hope and his love is that you would stop and learn how to pack a parachute before you go through life. Verse 4. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I'll destroy your mother. That's an odd line to throw in there. My people are destroying for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. And I also will reject you from being a priest for me because you have forgotten the law of God and I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they've sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They shall eat up the sin of my people. They shall set their heart on their iniquity. Let no man contend or rebuke another. This is bad. This is a loss for the northern kingdom. So what's happening here in judgment, the the charges have been laid, and now the consequences are being spoken, or the sentencing is happening. God assumes that people correct each other, and that priests are the primary people in that society that were meant to rebuke and address each other. Yet we see in verse 4, the contending and rebuking, you don't get to do that anymore, because the priests do not have a moral high ground anymore. So they've lost the right to rebuke people. Have you ever been rebuked by somebody you love and and respect? Have you ever had someone kind of, but if you say didn't respect them and you didn't love them and they tried to rebuke you, then you, it's easily dismissed. Like, I don't care what you think. Who do you think you are? But when somebody you love and regard rebukes you, it's, it breaks your heart. So God assumes that people are there to help each other and correct each other. But when nobody's left that knows God's word, Nobody has any business to tell each other what to do. And you, honestly, you think of this and you think, well, isn't that the way that, that a non-Christ-following world reacts? I mean, that's a natural thought. Like, if I can do whatever I want to do and God's law is not important, then who are you to tell me how to live? So the, the idea of saying, I don't even accept contending or rebuking anymore, I'm going to live however I want to live, and nobody can tell me what to do, it's an entirely consistent position that, that rebuking becomes absent from that culture. Nobody can correct anybody. And God's looking at this, and that is one of the consequences. Re- rebukes are a reminder of what God says about sin. Hey, God says this, and you're doing this. But if you don't accept God and you're not interested in God, what good does a rebuke do? There's no moral position for it. Leviticus 19.7 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. When we rebuke someone, in part, there's a very selfish motive to do that. If sin happens from a brother or sister that we know and we don't say anything about it, we're actually bearing that sin according to Leviticus. We own it because we didn't say anything about it. And the command in Leviticus is that surely you shall rebuke each other. But here in Hosea, he's saying nobody gets to contend or rebuke one another. It's entirely consistent. In a godly nation, people encourage and and iron sharpens iron. But when you've lost God, nobody gets to do that anymore. And therefore, iron isn't getting sharpened. Our spiritual walk isn't getting honed. So there's this idea that if we don't rebuke people, we own the sin and God's rebuking them here saying, because of your arrogance, because you don't love God, you don't even get to do the beautiful gift of rebuking. 
And we often think of rebuking as a negative, but it's actually a tool for God's kingdom. It's a wonderful thing. Psalm 119.21, rebuking helps to rein in arrogance. It stops us from being too prideful. We have to humble ourselves when we get rebuked. So this idea that God's taking away that rebuking, that's a huge loss for a Christian or godly people. It's a huge loss. You, th- then there's that phrase, you shall, you're like people that contend with the priests. That's also not good. Priests acted as the final authority in their cities. They sat in the gate and they judged. So you get a judgment as to the legal system saying, here's what's going to happen here. And then people would argue about that. Like you're arguing with the people that, that give judgment in God's word. So God's saying, don't rebuke and you don't listen to people. And you're, you're contending with the moral authority in your society. Uh, the result is that you shall stumble, verse 5. The result of not being rebuked is you're going to stumble in your life. If you never accept advice or wisdom from people that have walked that path before you, you're going to stumble. That's why it's so important, especially for young people, ask for people's thoughts. Because most graceful adults aren't going to stick themselves into your life unless you ask them. What do you think of this decision? What do you think of this job offer? What do you think of this person that I'm dating? And when you gather that information and you take it with a grain of salt, you gain a humility from doing that and you don't stumble as much. There's a wisdom in getting thoughts. It says you'll stumble in the day. That's even worse. Frankly, you stumble in the day the older you get. (laughs) Sometimes you just don't lift your feet high enough. But to stumble in the day is a lot less excusable than stumbling when you can't see. But it's this idea that you're going to stumble when it's broad daylight out because you're not even, it's like there's light, but you choose to close your eyes and not see with the light that you're given. So it's understandable to trip at night. It's kind of embarrassing to trip during the day. And then it says, I'll destroy your mother. That was, again, in my translation, I was like, what in the heck is that? First of all, I will is not in the original Hebrew. It it actually reads, um, it it gives the credit to the predecessor in the sentence. So the prophet shall stumble with you in the night, destroying your mothers, is the literal Hebrew. So the effect here is that the destroying of moms is the effect of stumbling. So think of this. If you walk through life without any wisdom, help, or guidance from people around you, whose heart is broken the most other than God? Probably your mama who loves you. So sons and daughters that live in a lifestyle where they're doing whatever they want to do, it's just breaking their mom's hearts. Don't do that to your mom. Your mom should be proud of you. We often see that in the worst of communities, in the worst of subcultures, it's the mothers that cry the most. It's the moms that see their kids get killed. And so you watch the news and they'll go into a community and they'll talk about an act of violence, bloodshed on bloodshed. It's the mothers that get in front of the camera saying, we just can't have this anymore. So it's devastating when people act like this and live like this. And the the people that are most devastated are the moms. Verse six, my people are destroyed. God loves you just like your mama loves you. Like there is this idea that it breaks God's heart too. He doesn't want to see this from people, but they rejected knowledge and that causes the implosion of the people. And they keep jumping out of the plane, splat, 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 splat. And God's just like, open your eyes and learn how to live under the law that I gave you. You've forgotten the law. The consequence is I will forget your children, right? At some point, I'm going to leave you alone. So they don't qualify anymore. Under Jeroboam, they made anyone a priest that wanted to be a priest. So as God's critiquing some of these priests, we have to remember that in verse 4, the priests that they're talking about are false priests. They're there 
outside of God's law. And then they're giving bad advice. They're giving bad counsel. First uh, Kings 12, 31. And he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. They just, anybody who wanted to be a priest could be a priest. During this time, the faithful priests left, 2 Chronicles eleven fourteen, For the Levites left their suburbs and their possession, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. They, didn't, they weren't allowed to do what the Bible told them to do, so they left. And so what, what the people that Hosea is talking to right now are the priests that were the lowest common denominator and the ones that did not follow the will of God. He's basically saying, you got the blind leading the blind, you're all going to stumble, your mamas are going to cry, and I'm not going to worry about it too much, because you've picked your path. So the godly priests are gone, what's left are these false priests. Verse 7 says, the more they increased. Here's the thing, as the northern kingdom got larger in population, it just caused more shame. So there's this idea that if God keeps letting this happen, it's just going to keep inflating the problem, because they're past the point of no return. And then the phrase in verse 8, again, this is just good writing. They eat up the sin. When the kids start accepting sin as normal, not edgy, like there's always been kids kind of pushing the edge or the limits, but when suddenly sin becomes normalized where it's not even edgy anymore, it's just normal behavior in a culture, um, there is a point here where the, the hearts, they will set their heart on their iniquity. They actually pursue sin because they love it so much. Even if it destroys them, even if they just, even if the people before them go splat, 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 and the people all around them are going splat, 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 lives are being destroyed everywhere, this is a really ugly image. And God's like, boy, you're setting your heart on this stuff that's destroying you. You're actually living for it. Verse 9, and it shall be. So this is the next thing that happens. Like people, like priest. Like people are going to raise up the leaders they want. And, and when that happens, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. It's not just the priest's fault. It's the people that follow those priests. They're going to pay for this too. Verse 10, for they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not, in, harlotry, but not increase, because they've ceased obeying the Lord. The reward here is not good. <laughs> when they talk about reward here and reward them for their deeds, a reward is the consequence for action. And we often think a rewards is good. If I win a race, I get a reward for that. But this is being used in the other regard. If you sin, there are natural consequences for that sin. It is a just reward. And so what's going to happen here is that when God punishes them and rewards them for their deeds, those rewards are going to be the natural consequences of that behavior. For they shall eat but not have enough. This stood out to me. A chief indicator of God's blessing is people that are satisfied. People at peace. I remember living in small town Minnesota, you'd meet those farmers and they'd been farming for 50, 50 years and they'd all meet at the little greasy spoon breakfast restaurant and they'd hang out together. And then you think, how do you people get anything done on your farms? Because you hang out and drink coffee and tell stories till like 9, 10 in the morning and then they would go out and work. But I think most, for the most part is they all had sons that were doing the farming for them. So these kind of the retired farmers. But they would just sit around. And the amazing thing is most of them hadn't traveled very far. Most of them hadn't. They didn't brag about their big exploits. They were just content, satisfied people. They were just happy people. 
and you, re- you recognize what a heart of God and a service to God, it leads to satisfaction, not necessarily wealth and opulence in this world, but satisfaction with what they have. And the opposite of that is verse 10, you'll eat, but you won't have enough. You'll never be satisfied. So even in this period of wealth and, and, and opulence that they have, it, the earthly possessions have nothing to do with your level of satisfaction in life. And the sooner people come to realize that, the sooner they can be content. How much money you have does not automatically equate to satisfaction. So uh, Psalm twenty two twenty six: the poor shall eat and be satisfied. That's the opposite side of this. Even poor people can be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And what, what Hosea is saying to the northern kingdom right now is, you're going to eat, but you won't have enough. Even though Psalm says that there's these poor people that serve the Lord and they're satisfied and everything's good. What Jesus taught uh, is very, very similar. In the flesh, we eat, but we get hungry again. When we drink, we get thirsty again. So everything in this world leaves us unsatisfied. Yet there's a spiritual existence that leads to satisfaction. And this is how Jesus taught at John 4. Jesus answered and said to her, the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I shall give them will never thirst. But the water that I shall give them will become to him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. There is human food and there is human spiritual food. And the the consequence or the charge in the courtroom is God doesn't feel obligated to help them to be satisfied spiritually when they haven't done what he's asked them to do. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord, and it's been 200 years that they haven't been obeying the Lord. It's not that God hasn't been patient with his bride, that they've been denying him for a very long time. And at this point, the charges are coming to the courtroom. Verse 11, we'll get into harlotry. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. And the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and the brides commit harlotry, and I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit harlotry, for the men themselves go apart with the harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. This is an interesting passage. First of all, the idea of harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. He's talking about these pagan practices where they would have sex rituals, largely the worship of Ashtaroth, right? Ashtaroth worship is kind of this hedonistic kind of free sex kind of attitude around things. And they would go and ask counsel from the wooden idols. They're asking non-existing gods for advice and help. It's like going to a gypsy and asking for your fortune to be read. Right? They're going to read into you what you, they think you want to hear. And their staff informs them. Uh, that is an extremely vulgar way to talk about people thinking with their body parts. Um, it, is, it is blunt. It's kind of R-rated. The spirit of harlotries caused them to stray. The idea is they're so excited about their sin that they, they're straying away from God's word. Point made, which is why we're going pretty fast through this. Sacrifices on mountaintops. He names the tree types, oaks, poplars, terebrinth. These are all trees that have a wide, they cast a wide shade because they have a lot of leaves. Um, They're big trees. 
um, and their shades good. And then he's looking at this daughters, brides, and then in 14, the men themselves. I think the idea here is this idea of ritual harlotry is not just the women's fault. And I want to point out in verse 14, for the men themselves go apart with the harlots. There's two people involved in this. And so as this happens, God's going to judge them all. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. This isn't just the priests that are a problem. It's the people doing it. It's not just the ritual harlots at the temple. It's the men that go into those ritual harlots. They're the problem. And so God's going to look at both and he's going to punish them both in the same. The use of the image of harlotry here is associated with women. God's making sure that that image isn't misleading people. No, this is about men too. So it's not just the women of Israel that he's talking about. It's Israel that he's talking about. Verse 15 says, though you, Israel, play the harlot. Again, just clarifying this image for them. Let not Judah, be, let not Judah offend. Don't come up to Gilgal. Don't go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives. So as he's giving this judgment to the northern kingdom, there may be people in Judah getting all prideful going, yeah, the northern kingdom doesn't know what they're doing. But God then throws in this little verse 15 where he turns to Judah and says, let's not have you doing the same offense. At this point in history, Judah was introducing idols into Judah. So Judah's warned not to follow them in this sin, even though they've already started. Gilgal is a city. It was one of the cities where the sons of the prophets were. At this point in history, it's clearly a city where it's kind of a center for idol worship. The other one, Beth Avon's not actually a town. He's doing a play on words. Gilgal and the other primary center for idol worship was Bethel. So Gilgal and Bethel became these two centers for idol worship. Samaria was the political capital. Gilgal and Bethel were the religious centers that were there. Um, Hosea doesn't call it Bethel, the house of God. He calls it Beth-Avon. And it's a, pl- it's a play on words. Instead of saying the house of God, he says the house of deceit. Right? And you don't go running to the house of deceit um, where you're going to you know, swear these oaths and, and, make these, and think that God's going to respect or regard that. In other words, the people of Judah shouldn't be running up to the northern kingdom to participate in this nonsense. So these are the cities then that God's pointing out here as a center of this activity. God advises the Judeans not to go anywhere near this. Um, then he comes back to Israel, verse 16. For Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn calf. Don't miss that Gilgal and, and Bethel had images like golden calves, 1 Kings 12. That They had these kind of golden calves that were in these cities. So to make, again, he's doing kind of a play on words. Don't go up to the house of deceit or swear an oath saying as the Lord lives before Israel is like a stubborn calf. You're like that idol that you're worshiping. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in the open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. And the wind has wrapped her up in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So we should know that letting a lamb forage in the open country, in in sheep herding lands, this means the lamb's going to be dead. Um, Any lamb that goes off by itself, it's just a matter of time before a predator finds it and kills it. Um, It is like letting our little chickens go play in the backyard without supervision. At some point, the neighboring eagle will see that little chick, and it will swoop in and kill the chick. It's just a matter of time. So 
shepherds keep their lambs together in a flock and they protect their flock from the predators. So letting them go off and do their thing. Uh, if Ephraim, even though it's a large tribe, the Lord's going to let them go off and do their thing because they're done trying to keep track of them anymore. So the lamb's going to go into the wilderness. They're going to be gone. So the command here is let them alone. Don't let that, in other words, Judah, don't try to save Israel at this point. They're going to do their thing. We're going to let them do their thing. For me, at least, this is, I think, a good thing to pray for. Like, as a person of God, one of the things we can pray for is, God, don't leave me alone. Be with me. Be present with me. Never leave me or forsake me, Lord. And when we pray that, we're praying the heart of God right back at him. Because God doesn't want to leave us. This breaks his heart to let this happen. Um, But again, you got this image of Hosea with his wife, and he's let her go off to do prostitution for a time, but he's going to go and redeem her. And we know that from the last chapter. But to say, let him alone here, we pray the opposite. God, don't leave me alone. Woo me. Continue to ask me to be your bride. Pursue me. And, we, and God helps us to change in doing that. Chapter 5, hear this, O priest, take heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment. Because you've been a snare to Mizpah, a net spread on Tabor, the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, and though I rebuke them all, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit adultery, and Israel is defiled. It's interesting because before, remember, he said they could, they shouldn't rebuke each other, but that doesn't re- mean rebuking goes away. Here in verse 2, God's rebuking them. They don't have the moral high ground anymore, but God always has the moral high ground. He's created that. So Israel, you're guilty, so listen to what's coming next. Here, O priests, the priests were supposed to disseminate what God says to the people. So he's saying, listen up, this is what's going to happen. Verse 4, they do not direct their deeds towards toward turning to their God for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. So the pride of Israel that's being talked about here, all sin assumes that God's word doesn't matter. All sin assumes that God's word doesn't matter. So the idea here is that they've disregarded it, and it's a pride to think so. It's prideful to think that your opinion is better than God's and that your take on things is better than God's take on things. You put yourself above God's word and his will, you're elevating yourself to a point of iniquity. You've singled yourself out before God. And that idea, even the pride of Israel, testifies to his face. So God's brought him into the courtroom. He's laid out the charges. He's starting to work through this. And instead of understanding that they're in a courtroom, they're pridefully, arrogantly saying, we can do whatever we want to do. We don't even need to be in the courtroom right now. The only problem is that doesn't work. And that, that's not going to stand in the end of days. Verse 6 says, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. For he has withdrawn himself from them. They've dealt treacherously with the Lord. They've, they have begotten pagan children. And now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. The very things they went seeking after are going to eat them up. Because God's not going to protect them from it anymore. And then the consequence, again, this is the consequence that we agreed on back in chapter 1 and 2. Uh, that he has withdrawn himself. That's the consequence. God withdrawing himself from the people is as bad as the flood of the world with Noah. 
it's as bad as the, the absolute judgment at the end of days. Because when the presence of God withdraws himself, you're at the mercy of whatever the world wants to do. So Lord, don't withdraw yourself from me. Verse 8, the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud in Beth Haven, the house of deceit. Look behind you, O Benjamin. In other words, watch your back. <laughs> like, okay, so this is the God of judgment, right? And people often say, well, the Old Testament's the God of judgment. Yeah, there's some passages like that here. God is bringing judgment, and that judgment is he's going to let them live and, and fend for themselves. But as that happens, the warning is, look behind you, O Benjamin, like, watch what's coming. Mind your six. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I made known what is sure. The point of verse 9 is, I have told you with the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, and now Hosea, you've been adequately warned for 200 years. You've absolutely known what I want you to do. You've been told through my word. It's been recorded at the temple. It's in writing. And you've disregarded that marriage covenant from Deuteronomy. You've disregarded the covenant you made with Joshua. You've disregarded the covenant that has been made with David and with Solomon. And you keep disregarding the covenant. It's time for a divorce. And the divorce is God's going to get a separation. He's going to walk away from this for a season. Princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Again, a, a pretty obvious reference to Noah with the floods. A disregard for godly history, a disregard for boundaries and borders, a disregard for God's territory. Okay, the impact you're going to feel is that Assyria is going to remove those landmarks. You're going to start to see that the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. You're going to experience what you've done to God. Assyria is going to take away your land and your authority, but not to desolation. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. He chose to do what his culture said to do. Chose to do it his way. Again and again and again, person by person, family by family, community by community, you're making laws for yourselves that are in contrast to God's word. Humans love to define what holy is. Both the ungodly, but also people in the church like to say, this is what's holy for me, therefore you should do it too. And it becomes legalism. Instead of defining everything by God's word and living by God's word and, and letting God define what's holy, people love to decide what they think is holy, walking by human precept instead of by God's precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. It doesn't say that God's a moth or that he is rottenness. It says he'll be like those things. Well, what do moths do? They eat your clothes. They do it quietly. They do it silently. You don't know they're there until you try to put the clothes on. You got a bunch of holes in it. What does rottenness do? Rottenness moves quietly and silently and it rots things out and you don't see it happening until you actually try to use that thing for support and you find that it's rotten. We started digging out the garage and they didn't put a water barrier and they just put wood on concrete and we started to take that piece out and it just crumbled away. It looked like wood from a distance, but when we started to try to pull that piece out, it just crumbled. There was nothing, it was rotted out from the inside. Appearances are great, but the inside, there's nothing left. And God's saying, this is what it's going to be like. You're going to need to lean on me and you're going to find that there's nothing there. Your clothes have holes in them and your wood is rotten to the core. 
And so as Assyria starts to surround the northern kingdom, they're going to cry out and there won't be anything left. They won't be able to stand on their own strength. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. They're going to realize they're in trouble. And what the northern kingdom is going to do initially is they're going to try to buy off Assyria. They're going to send them tribute for years. And in sending them tribute and paying taxes to Assyria, they're going to lose all of their autonomy. And essentially, they're thinking that's going to save them, that they're going to get safety from a deal with Assyria. And God's saying that's not going to help you in the end. Assyria is going to destroy you. And that's exactly how this plays out. There's a false security from Assyria, and all Assyria is doing is setting themselves up so that they can conquer. And, and they let them in the door. So like a moth and like rot, they're nearly invisible until you try to like fight for yourself and you realize there's nothing left of your country. No military force will stop Assyria. So these are subtle warnings. They're slow. They're imperceptible. And then in verse 14, it shifts gears. It goes from slow, imperceptible things to a lion. Like when a lion's coming to attack you, you know it. They're not like dogs, silent and stealthy. When lions attack, they start with a roar, and, they st- and, they, and they, the roar is meant to freeze their prey so their prey doesn't know if they should run or not. And that's the whole attempt. So, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense and then they will seek my face, and in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. This is the point of punishment or dis- discipline from God. When someone's going so far astray from God's plan, there's often a discipline, but it's never to the point of hatred from God. His desire is always to get back into the covenant and back into the marriage. And this is exactly what he told Hosea to do in chapter 3. I want you to go back to that harlot and renew a covenant with her. And this is what God's saying at the very end of the charges passages, at the very end of five, they're going to seek my face and in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. They're going to realize there's nothing on earth that can protect them or help them. They're going to pursue every path they can in life, even trying to make deals with their enemy. But at the end of the day, as they get eaten by the world, they're going to start crying out for the real and living God. And that's God's hope. It's not that God's a cruel punisher and he, and he just destroys for the delight of destroying he's going to let them get hurt in this way so that they return to a covenant with him and remember for God I think a lot of the this pain and struggle that they're going through it's not because he made it happen it's because he has withdrawn himself from them they're trying to make deals with Assyria and Assyria is a consuming nation they want everything that they have So much of this mirrors what Amos was saying. In fact, if you take Amos together and Hosea, you've got a pair of witnesses here. In other words, the northern kingdom's getting two witnesses that are saying the exact same thing. Assyria's going to come, they're going to haul you away, and God wants you to repent, but you're not going to. And when that happens, his hope is that after you've been carried away, you turn your heart back to the Lord. And this is where the 10 lost tribes come from. And we can kind of end on this thought. People say there's 10 lost tribes of Israel. It's not a biblical concept because especially in these verses, God is saying, despite the fact that they're going to be spread all over and Assyria is going to transform them to all these places, God knows exactly where they've gone. 
They're not lost to God at all. God knows who they are, where they went. And what another thing that's kind of interesting is as history goes on, we will find that there are people of God that have arisen all over the place. So when Judah gets taken off to Babylon and then they get brought back, there are remnant believers all over. And so God starts to rebuild it. When the disciples started to share the good news all over the world, they found people ready to hear the gospel of Christ all over the ancient world. These little pockets of people looking to turn their hearts back to God, Gentiles. It's hard to argue that some of those Gentiles may or may not have been influenced by this diaspora of the northern kingdom. And that God's actually orchestrating a setup that's going to happen. So yes, they get punished. Yes, they get hauled away by by Assyria. They read Amos, they read Hosea, and they realize all of this is God's thing. And they turn their hearts back to the Lord. They give up their idols, even if it's just one family off in Tarshish or one family up in Berlin, right? Just one place or another, you got these northern kingdom people that get scattered. Some of them are going to turn their heart back to the Lord, and that's exactly what the Lord wants to see. And so Hosea in chapter three through five lays out the court case, lays out that consequent that's going to happen. Um, and as we come back next week, the rest of Hosea starts to play out kind of God's plan for the northern kingdom and what's going to happen. Um, and again, lots of warnings. We go through these chapters. It's easier to do three of them because it seems like the same thing being said over and over and over again. You go after this stuff and there's a consequence for that. And so Hosea is going to be a lot more of that. We're going to see that thing. But maybe that's good for us to just keep hearing that message again and again and again. Let your heart go astray. There's consequences. Seek after the Lord God. There's blessings. And we just see that God's made it very simple for us, very binary humans, to figure that out. Follow God or don't follow God. That's the two categories God cares about. And so we end tonight with just that thought. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Hosea. We thank you for the clarity of the word of God. Um, Lord, we thank you for each lesson you have to teach us. And Lord, may our hearts turn to you. Lord, I pray we don't need this kind of discipline. Because we fear you and because we know your power, we know your grace. We also know your mercy, Lord, and we don't take advantage of that. We don't sin just assuming you'll be merciful. Lord, help us to set our hearts on you so that we run from sin and we pursue you. Lord, we want to be a bride uh, that is pure and, and, and ready for the wedding. And Jesus promised he would return for his bride, the church, and we want to be a bride that's just someone you're so excited to see, Lord, because we've been preparing for you. Uh, We've been lighting our oil lamps. We've been praying. We've been in the spirit. We've been reading your word, and we can't wait to meet you. So, Lord, help us to to continue to fill that image, Lord, in our hearts. May May we seek you and not this world. And Lord, bless our hearts tonight as we go forth. May we go forth in joy because we we have a God that loves us enough to discipline us when you need to. And so we just thank you for your love, your compassion, and the way in which you have interjected yourself into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it,
post it on your social media. 